I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 100 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, an episode titled The History and Restoration of Bel Air Country Club, an episode five years in the making, a golf course celebrating its 125th anniversary, and a restoration completed this very winter. This episode about my very own country club helps define serendipity. This was all meant to happen, and somehow it came off without a hitch. Today on our show, you will get a glimpse into my country club, Bel Air, and our amazing and mostly unknown history, the restoration of a Donald Ross classic that sits upon the shores of the Gulf of Mexico, and a panel including myself, my friend, producer, and board member of the Society of Golf Historians, Vaughn Halyard, who will be emceeing this show. Hal Bodley, the former president of the club, chairman of the Bel Air Restoration Committee, and author of our 125th anniversary book. And finally, Jason Straka, a Fry Straka, who tirelessly helped bring Donald Ross's West Course back to life. This is a wonderful show, and I'd like to give a very special thanks to Ed Shaughnessy, the GM of Bel Air Country Club, and Jim Slattery, our head pro. None of this would have been possible without your support. Another special thanks to Hal Bodley, who headed up our restoration committee, and Earl Cooper, our former club president, who was pivotal in restoring our soon-to-be-famous fourth hole. I hope you're as excited as I am. Let's dive into episode 100, The History and Restoration of Bel Air Country Club. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Can you hear us okay? Excellent. Good everybody in the back hear us okay? Yes. Perfect. We're going to jump right in. My name is Vaughn Halyard. I am a lieutenant, a lieutenant in the Society of Golf Historians. Uh, thank you for participating, listening, uh, and golfing today. Uh, to my left, on the far end, is the founder and previously sole proprietor of the Society of Golf Historians, Connor Lewis. Connor, why don't you uh, sort of give a quick five-minute, three-minute intro, who you are and how you started the society and why we're here today. Well, I don't think I can do that in five minutes. <laughs> oh, give me two minutes. Okay. Um, anyway, I'm Connor Lewis. Uh, the Society of uh, Golf Historians started really five years ago, a little bit on a whim. I, I would say it's very possible that I was becoming a Cliff Clavin to my friends and family. And uh, one of them, Brian Knotza, who's on Twitter... But anyway, Brian said, you know, you should be on Twitter. And I was like, listen, you know, nobody's going to listen to me. Like, this is no chance. And it turned into something. And then that something turned into a podcast, which has turned into multiple opportunities, which brings us to you. So it's been a fantastic ride. I, I really honestly didn't think that, I mean, I hate to say it, that this many people cared about golf history. And so it's 
really terrific to have an event like this, our first event specifically, at this historic course and have you know our, our club historian and the architect here to sit down and go through this slew of questions and maybe answer some questions from you guys. So, For quick clarification, this is not your day job, right? No, no. Uh, my this job is subsidized by my real job. <laughs> exactly. One, one day, one one time, someone asked to be a partner. They like, I need, I'd love to partner with you. And I'm like, I will need a check for ten thousand dollars because I lost twenty thousand dollars last year. Let's do this. <laughs> Sounds like a great deal at the time. Sold. Uh, next to him is Jason Straka, the golf course architect, who did a phenomenal job. Jason, why don't you give the audience a quick background on yourself? They just pulled me off the street a moment ago, so I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. No. Uh, <laughs> first off, thanks for being here, everybody. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, thanks uh, to Connor and to Vaughn and to Hal, of course, for putting this event on. Fantastic. Uh, also to to Ed, uh, the general manager, wherever he's at. Uh, Ed Chonesy is across the room. Waving? And everybody, this is the gentleman here that uh, gave you the books. Ed and ha- Ed and Hal. And also thanks to all the uh, the whole staff here today. They were uh, fantastic. Uh, just brief background about myself. Uh, so originally from Ohio, grew up on golf course maintenance and construction, went to Cornell University, studied under a couple of guys named Tom Doak and Gil Hands and Jim Rubina. Uh, so that was uh, obviously uh, entertaining and enlightening. Um, then uh, went to uh, graduate school at Cornell. Uh, where then I mentored uh, under Dr. Mike Herdson and started with his company 20, almost 30 years ago. And so back in 2012, then Dana Fry and I became partners. Uh, and so we've been off and running ever since. For informational purposes, give us another couple of minutes. Cornell is a hotbed. It's, you know, a lot of people have gone there and just kind of give insight why Cornell is a hotbed. Is there a golf architecture thread or a school? But what, what is the connection to golf architecture through Cornell? Well, so Robert Trent Jones attended there, right? And so uh, obviously from a U.S. perspective, there draws a lot of kids in because of that history. He studied landscape architecture. But what was cool about Cornell specifically was that it allowed you to really tailor your education. And so while you were a landscape architect major, you could take classes in irrigation and surveying and anything that was related to golf. Uh, and so that was, uh, you know, that became the draw. And once there were a couple of people that went there, like RTJ, and then, you know, Tom Doak and Gil Hands, and you go down the list, there's probably 15 or 20 of us now that are actually practicing in the industry. Outstanding. And to my immediate left is the wonderful author and historian of Bel Air, who is so much more than just a historian of a country club, Hal Bodley. Uh, again, this is Hal's book. And thank you for making this book available and for spending time with us. Hal, why don't you give us a little background on yourself? Well, thank you very much, Vaughn. You know, I'm really miscast in this role. I mean, all these golf historians and all, I'm a baseball guy. I'm a, life, I'm a lifelong journalist. And uh, basically, uh, my claim to fame is that I was a founder of USA Today, the newspaper. We started that in 1982. I've done a lot of TV on NBC, CBS, and, and the networks, and uh, we started a network in Major League Baseball after I retired from USA Today, which is the MLB Baseball Network, and uh, enjoyed that. Uh, I've written a lot of books, but they're mostly about baseball. One on Pete Rose. I'd, the most recent book that I did in baseball was How Baseball Explains America. I went to New York, and I did uh, Morning Joe and Good Morning America, and the, all the New York shows talked about the book, Vaughn, and... Uh, Really very, very good, and, 
and I'm sound asleep in the hotel, and the bell, the bell comes on the door, and the man said, you have a message. And it was my wife. She sent a message up from down here. She said, your book just got number one on Amazon. And I said, well, that's really wonderful. So I say that only only for this reason, that uh, I'm miscast because Ed Shaughnessy, who has become the general manager at this country, but more than that, a very, very close friend, he's been talking since the day I met him about doing a history book. I said, I never wrote any history books, but I said, I think I probably could take a shot at it because I've written other things. So uh, we started this uh, this history book, and uh, it's turned out to be what, what you all see, which I gave you this evening. Uh, more important than that, as far as uh, the golf course is concerned, uh, again, I was miscast. Uh, Mr. Shaughnessy and some of the other people here at this country club decided that I should be the chairman of the renovation committee that we're going to redo the West Golf Course. Well, I was a member at Wilmington Country Club in Delaware for 35 years, and we did the South Course, which at that time was rated in the top 100 in America. And uh, so I thought I could probably do it, but I never knew what I was getting into. It was probably the most uh, fulfilling and trying thing that I've ever done. Got to meet Jason. Started back in 2017. And what we accomplished, you saw out there today. So I was very proud of that. Uh, we, we added the seventh hole, the par three hole, by a tough negotiation with the town of Bel Air to get the rights for half of that peninsula. And we have that hole now. And, of course, the West Course, you all know, is, is probably really good. But I've had a lot of fun. I, I got into this book and did a lot of research. And it, it just became a very, uh, very trying thing. But it's been actually... Uh, more fulfilling in a lot of ways than all the other books that I've written in baseball and other sports. So I'm happy to be here tonight. I hope I don't embarrass you guys, but uh, you golf historians and everything, but uh, thank you very much. (laughs) I think that basically uh, this history book is going to be well thought of a hundred years from now because we did it in the 125th anniversary because when we started doing this book, there were no records to to go back to, but now they'll have this book to look at on. That's that's a great point. That's an awesome point. Let's let's circle back, kind of. Let's jump into the whole golf history side. Um, what does golf history have to do with golf architecture, and vice versa? Let's start at the high level. I think for me, golf course architecture is it's the setting, right? So if if you're going to watch Romeo and Juliet, and you go to the play, and there's amazing actors, the actors in that play are you know, the Tiger Woods and the Jack Nicholas's, but the setting for the play, which sets the tone for all that great action and those amazing performances is essentially our golf course. And if you think about it, uh, we were talking about this the other day with Augusta National. If you put Augusta National on, and I don't know if there's a course called Augusta Municipal, is it as memorable? I, I don't know if it is. It's such a compelling golf course that it makes for compelling golfers, which makes for a compelling tournament, which makes for compelling history. So I think it's one of the great tie-ins and why I'm so interested in golf course architecture. It is the one thing, in theory, that can be eternal. Golfers come and go. They live and die. They have a prime that ends. And golf courses, if built well and taken care of, can live on. And all those memories can be preserved. And so like. I look at this at Bel Air, and we have a very unsung uh, golf history. And I think we've had a very unsung golf course in in Country Club. And, you know, this is one step into the light, one step taken by Jason and another one by Hal that really shines a light on what was and hopefully what will be 
for this club. Let me interrupt you just one minute. Fire ahead. I, I really feel one thing that you said is very true. I don't, I don't think – well, yes. <laughs> Sorry, Hal. But, I had to do but, that. But, but I'm not a negative reporter, actually. Yeah. I try. But anyway, I believe – I don't think many people, maybe in the golfing world and certainly here at Bel Air Country Club, did not realize the history, the, the unbelievable history of this golf course until we started delving into it, the West Coast Open, all the people who have played here, all the things that have happened here. I mean, even the casino where Walter Hagen used to go. One day he went out and he's uh, – Evening wear the next morning for a 7 o'clock tea time. I mean, there's so much history here, and I think you're positively right. I think yeah. it's it's not been told. Uh, you're not alone. I think we had the same. Uh, i jump in. My name is Vaughn Halyard. Um, my day job is music, media, film, technology, and production. I have lineage through Disney. Um, I also produced Stevie Wonder and Deanna Jackson for years. So my... Uh, my attraction to golf and golf history came through my son, who wanted to be Tiger Woods, so I had to learn golf at <laughs> 43. <clears throat> and you can imagine trying to learn golf at 43, having never really... And, but I can hear my dad saying, I told you, you should have done this at seven. But um, I got in because we were lacking history and provenance at our club, which is Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It was overgrown. Long story short, we had to learn the historical facts to support a restoration and taking the course back to where Donald Ross had envisioned it. I mean, I, I was at a course where people would say, well, nobody knows who Donald Ross was. And I looked around and learned more about golf architecture and golf history and said, well, I kind of beg to differ. You guys are heads in a cloud, but we need to fix it because you can't see the green from the tee because there's so many trees. So that is kind of where all of this gets tied together. The joy of architecture for me and the joy of history for Connor led us to all this and meeting all of you and working with you. Uh, and again, I want to say thank you all for coming. Um, Hal, why don't you jump in and, and, and kind of expound on a little bit of that rich history that people may or may not know about Bel Air that is in your book. Well, yeah, we really worked very hard at finding some of the intricate uh, details of that history. Uh, I, I must tell you that this big hotel that used to be on the grounds here, the Bellevue Hotel, the Bellevue Biltmore Hotel, uh, that was really the attraction back in 1897 and in the early 1900s because Morton Plant and his dad before that built the hotel. And then they had a nine-hole golf course, actually a six-hole golf course, nine-hole golf course, and then, of course, Donald Ross came on the scene. But what, what I've tried to say in this book is that really without the hotel, we would not have this great history of this golf course. But without the golf courses, we would not have had the hotel and all the people coming here from all over the country uh, in their rail cars pulling up and spending the summer, or, I mean the winter here, to get away from the, the cold of the north. Uh, it was really kind of a, a partnership, so to speak, and that's exactly what this history was all about. And to, to mention the hotel, I must tell you that much of the history that I was able to glean from this, uh, I found by going into the basement of the hotel, going through some of their really old archives down there. I dug through those hour after hour after hour. One day, I found a photograph of Bobby Jones playing golf here in a match that drew 2,000 people. Nobody knew that, but that, that, of course, is in the book, and you can read about it. I mean, there were a lot of pictures of Walter Hagen, Gene Sarazen. Gene Sarazen built a home not too far from here, north of here, 
And he used to come here all the time. He spent many, many hours here playing golf here. Arnold Palmer used to come over from Bay Hill and practice here a lot. He had a, a, an awesome hole one time on, on a par five hole that he likes to talk about. I mean, he had a, a chip that went astray and, and that type of thing. But it just went on and on and on. The West Coast Open. Walter Hagen set the world record of a 62 back, I believe it was back in 1924 in the West Coast Open right here at Bel Air Country Club. He and Bobby Jones played a match here at Bel Air Country Club one time. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And uh, the history is just, as I say, I got into this not knowing what I was going to get into, but it really, really uh, excited me and energized me. And despite the fact that I've had some baseball books that have done quite well, this has been really the most exciting thing that I've ever done. And the reception of this book here at the club, at least, and from you people here tonight, has been just awesome. It's really kind of given me goosebumps. Thank you, Vaughn. Oh, pleasure. Jason, let's let's jump, let's stay on the history thread. Talk about the history and your research and your process. Um, and just for time's sake, specifically to Bel Air, what did you uncover? What kind of things did you restore from Donald Ross that had either been eroded or eradicated? And how does the history fit into your process? <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> you know, Vaughn, I would say that, you know, there's, some of my colleagues are sitting here tonight, and I think that most of us would probably agree that to most members at a particular club, history becomes anecdotal. You know, they, they like to say that they're a Donald Ross golf course, but, you know, when the rubber meets the road, you know, sometimes it doesn't mean as much to them or they don't, maybe they don't care as much. And so, you know, that's one challenge that you have to sort of, you know, break through and overcome and educate. Um, and so, you know, and that happened here, you know, I mean, frankly, I mean, this was not an easy project uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, construction is one thing, but actually getting through uh, to and educating members. You know, I remember early on when I started, and the reason why I was so interested in this particular project and Dana and I uh, and Patrick Burton, who's sitting here, uh, who's one of our senior design associates as well, uh, who worked on this golf course and spent hours and hours working on it, was so excited about it is because we started to learn about the history. And, you know, to us. Let me, let me interrupt you one minute. I have never seen your adrenaline flow like it did when we went to Pinehurst and went through the Tufts Museum, <laughs> the Donald Ross stuff, and you were able to find those drawings in 1924 when he came here and redesigned the golf course. I mean, that really, I think it just really triggered everything you did. It, well, it did, you know, uh, how for sure it did. But, you know, it, it, and it wasn't, the research was one thing, but then to educate the members on what they had here, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that became a huge component of this and why they should care. I would say that that was probably the biggest challenge is people would mm -hmm. come up and they were like, why, why do you care so much? Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's, you know, it became a bull in the China shop and, you know, I'd be way more stubborn than I am even to my wife at home. Uh, you know, but I'm like, you know, of any golf course, I mean, think about, think about this, that this golf course was renovated, right? Renovated by Donald Ross roughly five years before Seminole was even built. And he came here. That was right. the big and thing. So, and then you start to educate him. Like any golf course who has any sort of, uh, you know, Donald Ross even, you know, plans to look at it, they want to be called a Donald Ross golf course. And I'm like, but to actually know that he spent time here, then came back and, you know, and renovated the project, uh, 
you know, he was the first president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. A whole bunch of our first annual meetings were actually held here at this golf course in this hotel. And so, let, let me jump in. So you say renovated. What snapshot in time? What point in time did you choose to renovate to? Was it for, on the drawings that you found at the Tufts? Well, so what happened then was that how painstaking detailed this process became was that. We, we found all of the originals. The club had some, right? So that was one source of information. And so they had the original drawings, you know, that were roughly from 1914 built in, you know, 1915. And so that became one set of information and whatever pictures from that time period. And then that essentially became the base, right? So we converted all of those to modern day documents, right? Because he did blue line drawings or blueprint drawings and sketches and things. So we actually went through and, you know, Patrick, who's sitting over there, actually scaled all of those drawings to a modern day base map, overlaid them. And then uh, another piece of information came then from, from the hotel, right? So they had all kinds of archives in the basement and we just poured through all of them and found pictures, postcards, you know, old photographs, uh, articles, sketches, I mean, anything. And then, of course, at, at Pinehurst. And so then when we went to Pinehurst, uh, we actually then had his, um, his remodel notes and drawings from 1924. And so the things that he didn't like, now this is interesting now, so the members that are here, so there were things that he did that he didn't like, you know, 1915 or how they aged or how they matured, you know, he wrote about him and sketched about him, about how he wanted, you know, and, and did change it. And so from 1924, we took all of those notes and all of those plans. And if there was anything different that he wanted in 1924, we basically cut out those sections out of his 1915 design and then put those in. One more interruption. When we had to sell the membership on returning to this Donald Ross design, we, we had a big, of course, membership meeting because they had to approve the cost of the, of the golf course renovation. We put out a brochure for the membership. And we used each of those drawings on each of the 18 holes that we were going to renovate so the members could actually see what it was going to look like, uh, you know, going back to the Donald Ross 1924 design. Yeah, well, I, I want to continue on that thread, the storytelling part of the history, which is essential to basically marketing and selling and evangelizing the need for a restoration to your membership. Connor, kind of walk us through the process of what you guys went through at Bel Air from a storytelling and educational, educative process. It's probably more up to how. I came in very late in the the process. Uh, When it comes to the storytelling and, you know, a battle for something I believed in, I really got involved with one hole, which is, if you hate it out there, I'm sorry, the fourth hole, which is the island hole. Did you, though? Uh, Yeah. So... You deserve a lot of credit for that. I remember the meeting that we had where we tried to sell just the inner circle on, you know, making that sand moat around the number four par three hole. And I think you did an outstanding job of presenting that. And I think people are already talking about it. I hear a lot of members saying, oh, I really like that hole. Thank goodness. So it was no one's I don't know if anyone's ever done an hour long PowerPoint on one hole. We sure did. His his, notes and letters. His brochure that he gave us for that hole was larger than the brochure that I did for all 18 holes of the golf course. (laughs) I couldn't take a no. No was not a possibility. And, I mean, it's, like I said, every time I play that hole, I smile, even when I go in the bunker. But um, I just think, I think ultimately, I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful and stunning in its own, you know, piece of architecture. But 
as I say, I think it'll probably be the most photographed hole in the state of Florida when it's all said and done. Staying on that thread, kind of talk to the room and share with us kind of your thoughts on the connection of storytelling of the history to the actual architectural implementation, you know, taking the the facts and separating them from the fiction and translating that to a plan that can be built. Well, I, I think what we need to do now, I think Jason's done something that's quite frankly staggering. I, I think the course, in my mind, is near perfect. Uh, I've probably played it 30 times, and it's played differently 30 times. And one of the amazing things when we deal with architecture is you're out in nature. So yesterday we played and we had a 30 mile per hour wind that was in the exact opposite direction as today where we had 30 mile wind. And it just changes the dynamic of that hole. I think there is an education that still needs to probably ongoing with the club as to, you know, why we have, you know, these amazing greens. And I think they're amazing. I think that it's, it's good to have a challenge that, you know, a challenging hole, or I'd say good architecture has interesting greens. And to that point, I know there's been talk within the club, and I, I think there, I don't know what the vote is right now, but I think the cop mounds are one of the amazing things that sets this course apart from almost any I've ever played, and other than being in Scotland with, with its sandy dunes. And, you know, when you read uh, Ross's plans in 14 and then again in 25, he's very specific in the height of those dunes, in the sandy nature of those dunes, in, you know, in the 25 notes, it's planting wire grass, like one foot apart apart to form a severe hazard. And he says a (laughs) severe hazard. So, you know, part of it is just educating our membership and our guests that, Listen, it's a hazard. It's part of the strategy. It's no different than hitting a bunker, except it's convex. And I, I would argue, uh, or have argued with some of my friends who got in it, and just say, listen, I mean, first of all, it's a hazard. But second of all, I'm like, I think there's an argument that's easier than hitting out of a four-foot-deep bunker. So you know, I, I think there's a little bit of storytelling that still needs to be told. But the one thing that I always go back to, this is outside the golf course architecture, so I apologize, is you know, the course that we played today... Um, and and I, I truly don't think I say this with bias, and I get this, I'm a member, but we have one of the greatest histories of any golf course I've played in a long time. I mean, the Florida West Coast Open had, as you said, mm-hmm. all of those great pros. Mm-hmm. Well, ben Hogan, Sam Sneed, uh, Gene Sarazen, Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen, Bay, uh, Babe Ruth played here, Ty Cobb played here, uh, the former King of England, who, uh, you know, uh, Edward the Eighth like, was staying at the Bellevue Inn right. and playing here for like a month. Right. Um, and on top of that, you have Hagen 62. And it's the oldest golf course in the state of Florida. And I, I just, it's amazing. And, and then there's like little things. Like right. we, we talked about this before is uh, Brad and I talked about last night is um, I don't think a lot of people know that out of the 400 and some golf courses that Donald Ross designed, our East course was perhaps the shortest of them he ever designed it, 5,720 or 5,727. And it was a, a sporty, fun course. And the fact that three of the first pros here won the U.S. Open. Yeah. So, and there's no other club that I'm aware of in the United States that can state that they have three pros that won the U.S. Open. And they were Lori Octorloni, uh, Alex Smith, who won two, and Billy Burke in 1931. And it's, it's a staggering piece of history that, 
Um, you know, I, 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 and this is like, a, let's throw this out in left field and I might edit it out. But, um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about if I were to have an alternative logo, like a lot of clubs really like the alternative logo. And there's just so many places you can go because of our history. You could have a, a locomotive from 1897 because we wouldn't be here without the train. Um, you could have the three U.S. Open trophies. Uh, you could have uh, – one of my favorite stories is um, the Spanish-American War happened a year after this club was founded. And in 1898, they actually had cannons set up around the state of Florida, including Bel Air, on our, on our, our bluffs because we thought Mexico might have right. made us. <laughs> And so, you know, imagine a cannon on there. So I, I, there's so many, like, quirky things, and I, I think it all gets tied together. I love this course before it was restored. And a lot of you follow the podcast or know me from the site. Golf historians are aware of how much I travel and play golf at some amazing places across the United States that this history gig has afforded me. And the best thing I can say about this course is I feel homesick when I leave. <laughs> obviously my family Jen if you're listening to that I love you dearly it's not that <laughs> she doesn't listen just, just talking she doesn't listen to podcasts it's 100% true but her friends might tell her so um, no but I just I play this and I'm like I don't want to play anywhere else yeah. that's the best compliment I can mm-hmm. give you and Donald Ross the res- restoration and his initial work let's go to let's go to Jason Jason with regard to the features and the history for posterity and, and a little bit of ex explanation kind of go over some of the features like the cop mounds the the greens that are so intricate and so interesting uh interesting those were not your you know those were not necessarily your doing that's from your research i think it'd be great to hear some insight with regard to you know what the cop mounds are why they're there what size they were back in the day what size they were proposed to be and those features with relate in relation to the features that you built so let's start with the cop mounds. So the cop mounds, uh, so Donald Ross didn't actually do grading plans like we do modern day grading plans of contours. So he would put uh, spot elevation, so basically plus one, minus one, those types of things. And he would do an inordinate amount of cross sections. And so again, uh, you know, we for modern day construction, we would have to do grading plans. So we would go through, Patrick and I, we would go through and we would then take these cross sections and I, we've never built a golf course to plan this detailed, you know, as this one. And so, you know, we would look at those, those cop mounds and say, okay, you know, it was 20 feet long by 10 feet wide by six feet high. And if you had a peak on the left and a peak on the right, that's exactly what we mimicked, you know, out there. I mean, so it became that painstaking of a process with all of the cop mounds. He used them as inverted bunkers, you know, so Connor, you're exactly right. I mean, that's how he treated them. Uh, you know, he was a Scotsman after all, right? So think about it. I mean, it makes sense. He came from Royal Dornick, uh, you know, that area, and that's what he grew up playing golf in. And so sand dunes on Linksland, you know, that was, you know, uh, you know, very common and very, you know, knowledge. He didn't use that all the way through his career, but, you know, in, especially early in his career, that was a design feature of his. Uh, and so, you know, rather than putting in, a, you know, a normal, what we think of as a normal bunker, he would use, you know, that. Um, you know, the greens, you know, they're of interest, you know, we, again, all of the greens were done through cross sections. Many of them were done by photographs. You know, I remember standing at a specific angle on hole number 18, for example, from the front right, uh, side in the green, you know, we had a, a, a photograph of that green 
and we stood there with the guys, the shaping, you know, and I mean, to the exact shape and shadows and details, you know, that green, we did that on hole number five. So that's the one that you, when you hit across the, the ravine that's got the, now it has the condos in the back right there. So it was interesting because, you know, before we started the restoration, that green had a huge fall off on the left-hand side. You missed that green by a little bit and it kicked down into the creek. So it was interesting because we're reading his notes, looking at his annotations, uh, his sketches, and then the photograph. And there's actually, he wanted a slight slope from left to right. So the ball would hold it against that creek. And so that's been restored. But there was also that two-tier step that was in the green. So again, we stood there, I mean, and we built the thing exactly like the photograph. You know, so that's why I joke with Connor and I'm like, hey, this isn't my golf course, not Patrick's golf course. You know, this is Ross golf course. Why are you up here? <laughs> because unfortunately, Mr. Ross is not able to be here tonight. You know, I must, his, his ghost might be in the hotel. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a haunted hotel, by the oh, way, the Bellevue Hal, I have a question for you. Can you talk us through the history of the club, the kind of the, the transitions that you've seen over the years as a member? Well, basically, uh, up until the early 1970s, it was only f- open during the winter. But then it became uh, owned by U.S. Steel, and they turned it into a, a year-round club, and we built this clubhouse. In, in the late 1970s, uh, we actually, the, the membership bought the club, and it became Bel Air Country Club. It was Bel Air Country Club early on, and then it had other names, but basically it was Bel Air Country Club. Uh, I think it was really very, very awesome that the members were able to buy the club because they, it's in the book actually, Vaughn, but they had an 11th hour uh, decision-making process where it looked like if U.S. Steel was going to sell this club to the hotel, it would have become a public course basically for the hotel members. And the attorney that we, uh, we had, the club hired to handle this, worked out a deal. As he said, it was an 11th hour decision where they were able to, to turn off that they went to court, and ultimately the club was able to buy the, the members were able to buy the course. So that was very, very important. In it. But getting back to, to Jason, there's one thing I'd like to say. I mean, I, I'm sure many of you have been involved in golf course renovations, and the contractor comes in in the club, and they do all the work for all those, those very trying days of, of moving dirt and bulldozers and, and that type of Jason was here like every week, and I cannot say enough for what he did for us during that process because there were days when I would see him out there and he would be really going head-to-head with the contracting people because he didn't like the way certain things were being shaped, the way the shaper was doing this screen or that fairway. And I want to take my hat off for you for being here as much as you were because I'm sure that you don't usually spend that much time at a golf course when you're doing it. Thank you. Now, what what kind of changes have you seen through the – years with regard to the golf course kind of walk us through what it was like to play it in 60s 70s 80s however long you've been here has it changed over time and if you well, well the course both courses the east course and the west course were renovated uh oh maybe 15 16 years ago and i think they got away from the donald ross design and that was what uh, we, we were a little bit concerned about that when we talked about renovating the golf course, when we wanted to return it, and people said, well, we already have the Donald Ross design. Well, we didn't. We got away from that, especially on the East Course. I believe on the East Course, there's probably only about five or six holes that are true Donald Ross, and we hope to someday get back to that a little bit. But I think that was the biggest thing that we learned, Vaughn. Interesting. Um, kind of in the history of, of, of the course, you know, great golf courses in Scotland are built on sand. They thump and they run. 
Uh, this is a sand duny course in a warm climate. Jason, what you know? What kind of characteristics are you looking to deliver from the terrain with regard to Donald Ross and regard to a sand-based course? Well, we wanted to play firm and fast, you know, and that's. I mean, that people talk about that, uh, but to be able to deliver that is a whole other aspect to it. In the golf course, you know, Vaughn and Connor and Hal in particular, you know, if there was a wish, you know, going forward right now is that the golf course needs time, you know, to mature, you know, so all of you here, you played it today, uh, you know, but it's, it's tough to, you know, even judge a golf course, you know, in that short amount of time, you know, so for instance, we talk about the cot mounds. I mean, it, we literally were just putting, you know, some wiregrass plants that were four inches, you know, little plugs on there last week. And, you know, not all of them are planted, and so, you know, you got a little taste of like maybe in 15 and the one, you know, far corner where the naturalized areas were planted with the wire grass and it gave that, that nice framing, you know, that's the intent, the whole, you know, every hole is supposed to have that look eventually. A lot of that got wiped out, you know, in the hurricane. Uh, so these, gra- you know, those wire grass plants that are getting put in right now, they're warm season grasses, right? So they're, they haven't even started to grow mature. You know, and so those cot mounds, they need to settle, they need to compact. You know, the grass needs to mature, the greens need to soften a little bit. So you've got, you know, it just needs some age, like a fine wine. It needs to age a little bit. You know, early on, if you'll remember, after we started this process and we put the drawings up for the membership during their meetings and everything, there was a big pushback about the so-called native areas. They wanted grass there. They didn't want the sand and they didn't want a lot of the things that we were planning to do. But now that we have it, I mean, you'd be surprised the membership acceptance of what we've done. And when it grows in, I mean, it's really going to set up the hole. I mean, right now we're seeing a lot of it in semi-dormant conditions. When it really kind of blooms in its full, it's going to be gorgeous. It'll really set the tone for, I think, every single hole, unlike even what we saw today. Jason, is the plan to run it fast and firm? It's, you know, it has it great is, ca- characteristics. That is the, yeah, that is the, you know, to, to run it fast and firm. You know, I think what's really interesting here is that, uh, you know, there's the, the complexity and, you know, some people might say severity of the greens. When we did the greens, uh, you know, there, for example, we were talking on 17 today that had, uh, what did you call them? Am I allowed to say that on podcast? Marilyn and Monroe, the two yeah, mounds? Marilyn you just Monroe. did. I, it's not Marilyn Monroe. It's Marilyn's the one on the left. The right one's Monroe. I, I've named a lot of hazards out here. So Quicksand Creek, you got some good ones out there. Seaweed Hill. <laughs> Seaweed Hill. But those two, you know, so it's interesting because on the Ross plans, those were supposed to be roughly another foot higher than that. The mounds themselves. The mounds were in the greens. So understanding, you know, that we're balancing, you know, the modern day green speeds, you know, with, you know, trying to keep the complexity of the greens, you know, so I know. I know that some of those greens are really riding a fine line. And so, you know, it's, um, you know, there was somebody who wrote on the internet today, you know, the greens are great, keep them at a 10 and keep them, you know, really interesting. You know, as architects, you know, a bunch of us sitting in the room, that's always a debate that we get, you know, because we don't get to do a lot of those fun types of interesting things. If you're running a green, uh, you know, a speed at, you know, a 12 or 13, it becomes impossible. You have to have flat greens. And so, you know, that's, you want to keep those complexities in there, you know, and if something needs to be softened, you know, in time, then we'll address it. You know, I mean, that's, hey, look at Pioneer Summer 2. Donald kept tinkering along there for however long, right? Well, and I would argue, I mean, if you look at, I mean, severe green speeds, but also amazing slopes, Augusta National, 
I mean, when you see when you see that course face to face, and some of the slopes that are in those greens that roll at those pine or not piner, excuse me, Seminole. Seminole is another one. Yeah, you can put it off the green for sure. So, but I agree. I think you know, from a maintenance standpoint, got to keep it below eleven. I mean, there's we can't. I don't think we can duplicate what we do over here on the East Course. But nor would I want you to. No. I mean, and I don't think you would either, because yeah. then you would lose. The you know, character. you would lose a character of them. You know, the other piece to this, too, and, and I, 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 I'm not going to say it's unfair to judge the character of the Greens as a guest, but as a host, there is a real home field advantage for the members who play these Greens on a day-to-day basis. Like, I know... Are you laying down a bet to everybody I, in the room I, now? I'm telling you, there are bets to be made. But That's true of great. I know, like, so I, I did not do what I thought I was going to do, which was to tell Andy which pins I wanted to see. Because there are some pins out there that I think take the course even to another level, like on hole number 13 back left pin, where you have that kidney-shaped, you know, dead elephant that, you know, you buried in there. Like, you put it back there, fantastic hole. One of the best greens out here is hole number 10. And on hole number 10, there's a pin in the back left that if you're in the fairway, the damn flag does not look like it's on the green. It's literally floating out in the middle of nowhere, and if you're on the right side of the fairway, it, the two flags between 10 and 11 match up, and you're thinking, what the heck is that? The first time I played here, I saw that, and I was like, that is the greatest flag I've ever seen on a golf course. What I tell you today, too, next time when you're out playing, I'm going to walk and put that pin in the bunker yeah, just ahead of you. It looks, like. <laughs> it looks like it's – I literally was playing it, and every time I take people we, when we're playing down 10 – and Vaughn can vouch for this. I say, listen, when the pin's right there, it looks like it's floating in the air. And all you can look at on that approach, even with a wedge in your hand, you second guess it so badly that you just throw it out in the middle of the green and you have like a 60-foot putt. So I would have to – everybody asked me my favorite green. I would say probably 16. Oh. And it, interesting because that's the one that's got the, you know, the spine that runs right through the, the middle serpent, of, right. at a, at a diagonal. It you call it the serpent? <laughs> the serpent. Because, Vaughn, there are things that I don't know that I would have had the gumption to do on right. my own design here. But when you're out there and you're, you know, shaping that in the field, knowing that that's, you know, the Ross green, I mean, I was giddy. I was just laughing. I thought it was the coolest thing ever, you know, and it was so much fun to put that in. You know, the art of camouflage on that hole is specifically amazing to me because it's already elevated a little bit. But when the pin's in the back, the pin actually looks closer to you because you can't see the bottom of the hole. And so when I tell people to play it, I'm like, don't you dare leave that short. You have to go for that flag. And God forbid, if you hit it right, you are screwed to another level of screwed. You have to play that serpent on two or three breaks. (laughs) It is one of the most difficult putts I've ever seen. And if there's no one behind us, I always drop a ball. And say, try to make this in the back corner, and it is—it's it's all. Speed. How about the green on number seven? Um, without a doubt, yeah, yeah. Somebody yeah. hit somebody hit it to five feet today. Almost made a one. But Hell, it's well, go ahead. I'm sorry, Vaughn. Yeah, that's right. Hell, what was your impression the first time you played the restored course? Uh, it's, it's much bigger than I can handle. I mean, really, you know, I used to be a good golfer. But when you get older, like I am, uh, you wish you could play as well as you used to play. It's really a tough golf course, but uh, I think a lot of the members here are saying that, too, but they're enjoying it. Uh, do you have, you know, we all have the conversations at our club, with all the tee box opportunities to move up, have you, have you 
found another tea box that might allow you to have it more fun? I think that's true, and I think the members are finding that out too because they can you know move up. For we have a, yeah, I think the average age of the members here is something like sixty two or something in that area. So they they're not going to hit the long drive. So mm-hmm. they can move up a little bit and they can be very competitive at that at that at that yardage. Interesting. You know, I'll give a little caveat, not not to how to play it, but um, I think I've hosted, well, now like 80 people, but it was probably 30 prior to this in the last month and a half. And I think I probably have another 30 here in the next month and a half. But after every round, and I'll be curious to ask all of you, maybe we'll do a thing of hands here. Um, I'll do it when we're not recording because that's not great podcast material if people are raising their hands. It's hard to see. But I, uh, I, I like to ask people, which was your favorite hole? And, and I think this is... Kudos to Ross and the, and the work that Jason's done here that I've received nine different answers. And, I, and it's not even like one vote per nine. I mean, it's like there's multiple people that think this hole's the best and this one. And I mean, like that's half of the stinking holes people are saying there's, that is their favorite hole, which I, I don't run across that a whole lot when I talk about golf course architecture with people. The other thing of note from a historical standpoint that I like to brag about the club is in 1916. So it was a year after Donald Ross had uh, unveiled uh, the 36 holes at Bel Air. There was an AP article that ran across the country that said that Bel Air was in the top half dozen of golf courses in the United States from a design standpoint. And I'm not saying we're top six, we're probably seventh, but I mean, uh, (laughs) but I'll I'll say this. I, I mean, it speaks to, to have it back means a lot. Like, the, think about this, folks. The course you played today, Walter Hagen dropped a 62 from 6,500 yards. I mean, if you played mm-hmm. from the blue tees, he dropped a 62. That's using hickory-shafted clubs. That is a strain of grass that probably rolled like a 7 or an 8 on the step. Your fairways were, pro- or your fairways were not getting any roll. And a 62. I mean, I... I could probably do the math because I've done it before on what's considered the greatest sub 60 round, but that's got to be equivalent of like a 54, 55. Today, it's such a ridiculous right? number. For, uh, with regard to the features, um, Jason, maintenance wise, right? Cop mounds versus groves of nasty trees. All right, I'm leading, but yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What is the difference in the maintenance approach of this version? I mean, you don't have to mow the cop mounds, right? So you don't have to manage the trees. Is, is there a benefit to having mounds and more natural environment over the long haul? Well, so from the so a lot of what you folks played today uh, is unirrigated. Uh, much of it is centipede grass. You played it at its maturity, so it doesn't grow. You know, but it, no fertilizer, no mowing, right? No irrigation. So you know that's part of it. The cop mounds, obviously, you know they don't receive uh, irrigation or fertilization, those types of things too. Uh, you know, and then yeah, I mean, they're listen. Ross wanted wiregrass at one foot apart. You know, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to take time. You know, one of my favorite stories. I'm going to give this to any member that's in the room here, and for those of you who aren't members, you'll appreciate this too. So Bob Farron at Pinehurst became a very good friend of mine. And so when we were doing 
uh, the education and getting ready to, you know, convince the members to restore here. You know, Hal and that, the group came up with me, and we spent time not only with Brad uh, at, uh, at, you know, Tufts Archives, Brad Beck in here, but also we went to all the different golf courses around the area and spent time at Pinehurst 2 and 4. And uh, Bob would always tell me, and like, you know, I said to the members and the people that would come here, I said, how did you let them to get you to mature, you know, all of the natural, the native areas, right? And so he said, it's always a challenge, Jason, just keep grinding away at it. Keep grinding away at it. That's easier said than done, by the way. Uh, and he said, but, you know, I will tell you my favorite uh, Bill Core story. And I said, what's that? And he said, we wanted to have, you know, the big unveiling and to say that the golf course was finally done. And he says, the PR people here at Pinehurst would go to Bill and say, is it done yet? No, it's not done yet. It's got to it's got to mature some more. It's got to, you know, be patient. And he said, "Jason, this would go on month after month after month." And then finally, you know, she said, "Well, Mr. Core, the golf course has been open for a year now. Are you sure we're not done yet?" And you know, not done yet. So, you know, that's the type of thing, Vaughn, I think that's got to happen here in those mounds, right? I mean, so some of them are going to grow, some of them will pick away some plants. We'll move some here, we'll add some there, and it's just going to have to mature, you know, for for a while. I think one of the big things that, you know, maybe we should mention is that uh, we had to use ryegrass because of the, the fact that we had some storms and and the growing season. Of the Two hurricanes is a storm, right? huh? <laughs> Delayed it. <laughs> but so they're going to have to close the course down uh, for two months uh, next year and redo the with the this bimini year. grass. Right? It's this year. Oh, this year, right. Yes. Go back to Connor. Um, when the course was built to these specifications by Ross, do you know offhand what other courses would be contemporaries uh, in that period? And we can go to the audience for Brad Beckin if we want to do that as well. Brad would be a great one. I, I know that um, Ross's work, I think Rhode Island Country Club was a good example. And I, I only used it because part of my presentation to the committee for the fourth hole, I used Rhode Island Country Club because it was one of the very few holes that Ross designed that had an island green. And the article I shared was in the USGA Greens Committee report on interesting greens. And so, you know, obviously USGA definitely gave me a, a, a one-up, I think, when we were making that argument. You know, I, I'll say this. I think, I think what Jason did, in my opinion, is, first of all, faithful to Donald Ross. I think it's key to know that. But I also want to say, to me, it's daring. I mean, I, I think it, it's hard to put back, you know, sandy dunes. You know, we sit on a sand base. Uh, I, I just think it's one of the greatest things that we have out here are those sandy dunes cop mounds. And I think the way they're out there pulls the entire course together and gives you a feel that every hole is working together, but every hole is special in and in itself. And I, I just think the way we look at hazards what I hear from our membership is I don't see Sandy Dunes like that anywhere. And, and to me, I'm like, God, isn't it great? You know, like, <laughs> that's one of the great things. I mean, we are, I, I tell you right now, the praise that we are, we will get over the years. Uh, I know of an article being written in a large publication, and a lot of it is about the Sandy Dunes coming back to Bel Air. Because it's, it's a challenge to do that. It is a daring route to do that rather than to say, well, you know, that we could, we're just going to build the course and we'll just forget about these dunes or maybe we'll put bunkers in there and it won't be a convex hazard. And 
I, I don't know the trials and tribulations you went through to get that done, and, and especially the committee for agreeing to do it. But God bless you for doing it, because I just think it's one of the great things out here that makes it was it a work. tough sell. I imagine it was a I tough can sell. Only it really was, yes. So I would say, Vaughn, too, to that, you know, I tend to be a big, a, a bit of a uh, uh, pragmatist, so naturalist even to a certain regard, you know. So uh, right now, you know, they're not they're not playing them as hazards, you know, while they're growing in. And so, yes, I mean, are they going to take some maintenance, you know, t- to that point? Yeah. I mean, you've got to go pull weeds. You know, it's, it's a long-term endeavor. You know, go to Pinehurst, you know, learn. That's what we did. That's what the maintenance staff did. And so, you know, you start to understand how to care for them. Uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, people tend to want things to be perfect. And, you know, it was fascinating. I remember, again, Bob Farron, God bless him. You know, he said, Jason, he said, the first time we had a big rainstorm, the sand would wash and we would pull it back. And then it would rainstorm and the sand would wash and we would pull it back. And he said, and then he goes, and then it dawned on everybody that what we were trying to do here was be more natural. So he said, if that's where nature wanted to take the sand, guess what? That's where we just let it go. And he said, and then we didn't have to fight it anymore. But it takes, it's like a barrier that you have to undo almost what you have learned. And then people who hit into those areas, you know, so... People would say, how am I going to play that? And I'm like, well, did you play golf in Scotland or Ireland ever? You ever hit it into a dune there? How do you play it there? And they're like, well, you punch it back out into the fairway unless you're lucky enough to get a good lie. And I'm like, you know, that works across the pond. It would work here too. You know, so what if I hit in a footprint? What if you hit in a footprint when you're there? Or what if you happen to be lucky enough to play Pine Valley and you hit it in a footprint? What happens there? <laughs> right. And I'm like, if you're no really, rakes. There's yeah, no rakes. there's no rakes there. And if you're really that worried about it, put a couple of rakes out on the you know dune someplace and rake it when you're done walking across it. You know, I, I use this, I, and I take it for what it is, but whenever I put myself into a spot on this course, you know, I listen, I, I'm, I'm kind of a sadist, I guess, but I, I kind of smile and I'm like, I just got rossed. You know what I mean? It's I better get, than straight good. I get, straight good. I mean, maybe that's the new one. That's the new one. But I that sounds like, yeah, like it hurts. Burton. How about Burton? <laughs> you know, but I, you know, I think the challenge of knowing, you know, what's out there. Nothing is hidden, right? Actually, that's not true. Um, played last night with um, Peter Flory, and you know, I decided to be the member and not give him all the information on number three. And I think he didn't go in, but he almost went into the creek. We had the wind going in our face, but you couldn't see you couldn't see the creek, uh, you know, beyond the cop mound. That was and bad host. That was bad hosting. That was bad hosting. I thought it was great hosting. I don't really want to win that hole. So <laughs> he's a um, stick. But it is. I mean, it's it's learning. The advantage to a member long term is going to be tenfold over the people that are coming in as guests because you're going to know. You know, where are the safe spots? What's the alleyway? And one of the things, Vaughn, I, I, I'll give you credit to this. We were playing, I think it was right before we did the Vaughn Con podcast, and you were playing number nine. It's one of my favorite stories of, of a guest coming out here. And you hit a really good drive down the right. It was beautiful. It wasn't that great, actually. It was, he would bailed out. For, he didn't want to go in the in it's phenomenal. quicksand creek. I played away from the wet creek. No, yeah. You avoided quicksand creek. Center cut fairway, baby fade. Got saved, was in the fairway. But the beauty of it is that little cop man just creeps out just enough. And and Vaughn, he could have been mad, right? He wasn't in the hazard, but he didn't have a view of the green. And that's, <laughs> yeah. by the way, that's like one of the coolest things you that's, can do in golf, in my opinion. It's the finest mound. It was Strategy hit. is putting something where if you bail out, 
it's like a half-stroke penalty. It's not a real stroke because you can yeah. make that shot, but you have to commit. In, you have to really commit in your mind's eye to an, something you can't see once you take your stance. And, and you just said, damn, that was awesome. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I never had a, more I respect a, for you. Just a baby fade cut. Just butter oh, landed. Oh, God. In. Big old slice, like way away yeah, from the no. water. He's full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I said it. I can edit it. Um, the, uh, it, was a, it was a tremendous drive. Just eh, center eh. cut. How I, good was it? It was really good. It might have been a second shot. I don't even know. Nah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, you're not driving this. You know that, right? This uh, uh, landed in a fairway, and I got down there, and I oh, it was exactly where I wanted it, and got up to the mound, which was bigger than I had, re- had realized. I couldn't see squat. Couldn't see the pin. Couldn't see the creek. Had to go out and walk around, look on the mound, and figure out where my shot was. But that was the irony. I said, yeah, you had a really good shot, but you played it safe. You hit it too far, and you're still blocked. So you got to decide where you want to strategize and put your ball before you start firing away. And it was, it was a great moment because the mound was part of the play. And, and i got to add, those mounds for me, because I remember the course previously, I, I don't mind, you know, I'm not a member. Those trees were trash. There were so many trees in between all the fairways. We went through it, too. We had a bunch of trees that were trash at Cedar Rapids. You couldn't see anything. Now you can see 16, you can, from 16 holes, you can see the water. But with the mounds, you still have the ability to have some isolation from the other hole. So it, it was an interesting revelation to compare the new course to what I remember as the previous course. Hal, I have a question for you to keep it moving. Um, this is a, a pivotal moment for any club when you have essentially a new course in place of, of the old that was there last year. How are your members accepting? And you know, People may have joined this course for the way it looked and played. What have you heard from your peers, et cetera, from, uh, with regard to a change that's so drastic? Well, I think I can sum that up, Vaughn, very quickly. We have 82 members or 82 uh, candidates for membership, uh, golf memberships here at, uh, at Bellar Country Club right now. So they, they, they're hearing about the golf course. They're hearing about our country club, and uh, they want to be members. And there's a long waiting list. Enough said. <laughs> so I think... Do you want to take some questions? We have a few minutes left, or yeah, let's take some questions. Does anybody have any questions for anybody up here? And I can translate if you yell them out. Go ahead, Burn. Burn Bernacki, uh, head of the uh, Golf Heritage Society. Sorry, stuttered on that one. And he said that he started for the first three holes with rental set, which was a modern set, and he switched to hickory shafted clubs. It really is. And I, and I, would, I would argue that before... To paraphrase for the audience, he had a blast. Yeah. And he says it's a fabulous golf course for history. Hickory. 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 And I agree. You know, when I first moved here to Florida and I joined the club, I actually was playing hickory shafted clubs, and I didn't find it to be a great hickory course. There's not a lot of great hickory courses in the state of Florida because in Florida, because of retention, we are just married to ponds everywhere. And... It's a very modern game. So I think one of the great things that we've done is get rid of those ponds on the West Course and bring back something that's really unique in Florida, really a course that doesn't have a pond on it. I guess you could say there's a, you know elongated you know, creek back there, but it's not really a pond. And I just think that's another little feather in your cap or feather in Donald Ross's cap to, to get around having massive ponds that are just, in my opinion, plague Florida courses. Yeah, the question from the audience was from Brad Beckin, the president of the Donald Ross Society. 
who said it would be interesting to for people listening to hear about the treatment of the creeks that were here before and after the restoration. So uh, you're right, Connor. First off, is that you know this had a bunch of ponds that was they were put in over time, and it became much more of a modern golf course. Uh, when Ross was here, you know there were no ponds; they were all streams, and that's what was so unique about uh, this particular golf course. And so counterintuitive that everything else that you see in Florida, really. Um, but the only piece of the stream that was uncovered was really what you played today along hole number three. On the and, right side. Yeah, just on the, on the right, right side. Didn't just, even go all the way through. Yeah, just on the right-hand side. So from that point all the way through the rest of the golf course, those are all restored streams. So we got rid of the ponds. We opened up the streams, restored the flow. Obviously, it's going to take, again, a little bit more time to mature and and put, they're putting in some wetland plants, and so again, that'll that'll you know age and look better. But it helps with drainage, right? So just from a functionality standpoint, it helps with drainage, and it creates a very different uh, strategic dynamic. You know, that's uh, it would be completely different. So you would, you, would you say that eighty percent of the creeks that they played out there today didn't exist a year ago? Correct. And did you purposely add quicksand that it's trying to kill our members? I was trying to get you to go in it, but I got the wrong member. No. There's a, there's a couple stories of folks going after a ball, and it looked relatively dry. And it, like, I think for one of them, it went almost to their waist, and they had to be pulled out. So that is Quicksand Creek. I nicknamed it. So for that. We've got time for a couple more. Any more questions? So to paraphrase the question, you know, just so our audience can hear, uh, he's asking, what kind of preparation do you put in or what advice can you give to clubs that are celebrating centennials and 125th anniversaries that you did here at Bel Air? Well, I think what we did, first of all, this probably would not have happened had everything gone correctly in our 125th anniversary. Uh, We had some delays because of permitting problems. So actually, we were delayed two years from when we actually were going to do the renovation. So I think everything happens for a reason, and that, that was really quite fortunate that it did happen because we could build on that. But I think you have to build on the heritage of the golf course and build on the heritage of the country club and, and make your members feel how important it is to do this. Uh, what we tried to do here when I was the club president was to make it very transparent. We did not try to keep anything away from the members. We had membership meetings, with tell them, and Jason came to many of them. We uh, did slide presentations. We told them how important it was to do this for the course, why we had to do it for, you know, for the actually for the longevity of the greens and the fairways and the bunkers and that type of thing. But we were really we really did a good orientation program, so to speak, to our membership leading up to the final. And of course, as you know, they had to vote for to spend the money that we had to spend to do this. And uh, it was an overwhelming. In fact, of all the projects they've had at this country club. This was uh, approved by the biggest margin ever. So we felt like we really did our job uh, in making the presentations over the period of time leading up to the vote to get it done. The audience had a suggestion that uh, a lot of the information came from newspapers.com as a, as a source for doing history. The, the question was, where do you start with uh, your club history and how would you proceed and how do you begin finding and, and taking care of and collecting that information? I think we've had a great time. Um, gentlemen, any closing thoughts? No, I mean, I, my only closing thought is thank you so much for coming out. I think we had 70-some people in the field and 50 non-members. I want to thank Ed, uh, who really helped make it happen, and Jim Slattery, who wasn't here today, and the amazing staff at the club who really took care of everybody. 
but thank you so much for coming out and enjoying the course and just just coming out and play. It was, you know, unbelievable windy conditions, very Scottish conditions to celebrate the dunes, I suppose. And, you know, I, I respect the fact that it takes a lot for you to come here. I have, uh, by the way, I've got my high school classmate over here, Tori Landry, coming from California. One of my biggest fans. I'm going to autograph from stuff for her later. Uh, <laughs> we call her Mrs. Automatic. Not for good reasons. Uh, it's all about golf. It's golf. That's her husband. He can beat me up. Trust me. We're fine. Tor- Tori, would you like the mic or no? <laughs> Jason, any, uh, any closing thoughts? I'm not sure how to quite follow that, yeah. but... Go around. Go long. <laughs> uh, you know, again, thanks for all of you to you know, coming out. Uh, special thanks to the members who are here that want to continue to learn about the history and, and to be caretakers. Uh, you know, special thanks to the man sitting next to me here who's become a, a trusted and special friend. Uh, you know, I can't tell you without him, I don't know that this project ever gets done. Uh, so in his patience with me, uh, you know, it certainly paid off. You know, thanks to uh, Patrick Burton, you know, who's uh, here in the staff. You know, unsung hero because all the the hours that he dedicated to this project. You know, um, a lot of it behind the scenes and does this. Um, you know, he's he's a special man and a special architect, and so a big thanks to him. A big thanks to Brad Beckin sitting here because I would call him when I would hit a roadblock. This is before I got to know you really well, and I would say, Brad, I really need a lot of help from the Donald Ross Society. Can you please write a letter about this? And then next thing you know, you know, to the membership of Bel Air Country Club. And I'd say, if you don't believe me, believe the Donald Ross Society. <laughs> so, um, and thanks for, for, you know, Vaughn and Connor for, for putting this together. It's been a lot of fun today. Hal? I just want to say that uh, as a member of the country club, as the chairman of the renovation committee and uh, the broken down writer of this book, and, and all, I'm just flattered that everyone came and had such a good time today and... Uh, Thank you very much, and God bless everybody. I want to wrap up. That's it. I want to echo everybody's uh, thoughts and uh, and uh, closing statements. Uh, we're in the middle. I, mean, I was a green chair and a golf chair of a restoration. Uh, it was a major restoration. We did a lot of it in-house. and went very well. We ended up being listed in some top 100 uh, lists that were very gratifying because that was part of our plan just to at least recognize the excellence of the club, not only for the members, but for people that were working. It actually makes it easier for us to hire people when we say, hey, come work at a top 100 club. It's that that simple. And I think you guys are well on the way to that sort of status because this restoration is nothing less than transformative. Um, and I say that with uh, some involuntary expertise because that restoration that we did was destroyed in about 45 minutes by uh, 90 to 145 mile per hour winds. So we are in the process of going back to renovate because a lot of those Donald Ross features and lanes of play are no longer there. So I have a, a special place in my heart for people who really take the time to learn about what it is that needs to be restored, what needs to be shared with membership, what excellence need to be rec- needs to be recognized by the golf architecture because that delivers the experience. So thank you guys for allowing me to be part of your world because it is uh, just gives me joy. I hope you enjoyed this episode, which is so near and dear to my heart. Bel Air Country Club is a special place for me, and now perhaps you know why. 
50 non-members journeyed to Bel Air from all over the country to help us celebrate our history. A special thanks to each and every one of you. I wish I had enough time to thank each and one of you personally. You made this event even more special with your presence. This episode took so much out of me that I don't even know the subject of our next episode. But you'll soon find out. Thank you for listening to episode 100 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Mm-hmm.